Brooke Hills, good morning. Well, this morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to preach in a matter of overflow from the weekend out of the book of Hebrews chapter 12. If you have a copy of God's word, would you meet me there? Hebrews chapter 12. This weekend, just to cover some ground that the students and I began hoeing on Thursday, our sermon series, the theme for D-Now was fearless. In a world where fear and anxiety and depression, both clinical and generalized, where rates are on the rise, how does God's word speak to us in those spaces? So we began on Friday night talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we talked about how faith in God gives us strength to persevere and faithfulness to God creates a platform for God to work miracles. I love that story in particular because of the indignation at a king who set up a statue of himself. How bombastic, how audacious, and at the sound of those trumpets, everyone was supposed to bow, and yet those three Hebrew boys, as my childhood pastor would say, Shadrach, Meshach, and a bad Negro, they refused. <laughs> they refused to bow. We came back on Saturday morning, and we looked at the story of Elijah. And what it means to be fearless in a culture that wants to kill you one, but to be fearless in a culture when it feels like you're standing alone. There was Elijah against 450 prophets. And the story's not about Elijah and prophets. That story, that beautiful narrative is a showdown between Yahweh and the false gods and idols of the world that would stand to strip or tear away glory from him and lead God's people astray. I encourage those, your students, the students here at Brook Hills, that you must choose. Elijah says to the people of Israel, how long will you go on limping between two opinions? If God is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. Not idols, not the winds of culture, but God. And last night, we came together to look at a faithful sister in Esther. Shouts out to all the sisters out there. And Esther got raised up for such a time as that place. But we must not read the story of Esther and think that God needs us. Mordecai says to Esther, look, if you don't stand up for us, God will send deliverance from somewhere else. It's a great story of us not having such high esteem of ourselves to assume that God needs us, but of the great privilege we have that God would use us. And so this morning, I thought it appropriate to preach concerning faith and fear out of a passage well known. This morning, I'd like to preach a sermon entitled, In the Arena. When you get to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, say, oh, yeah. Now, see, here's how this is going to go. Y'all going to have to talk to me, all right? I understand that some people listen with their mouths and others listen with their hearts. And I understand there's some hmm and some hmm people in here. But y'all going to have to talk to me, all right? 
When you get to Hebrews 12, verse 1, say, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. If you need a minute, say, hold up, brother. Fantastic. <laughs> Chapter 12, verse 1 reads, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, someone say joy, joy. who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. And before considering it, we should pray. So let's pray. Father in heaven, ancient of days, your grace that is available for us this morning has no limit. I pray that you would speak into the parts of us that would seek to justify ourselves by our own actions and would you meet our stubborn, prideful hearts with the truth of the gospel. And Lord, you know us. You know the hairs on our head. You know our circumstances. You have not forgotten us. So would you meet us here? Spirit of God, you have prepared a smorgasbord for us this morning on these pages. You are the hand that penned the words on these pages. Would you be our God and our interpreter this morning? We love you so much. It's in your great name we pray. Amen. Amen. When I think about what it means to be fearless, I thought this week about Perpetua, the young noblewoman who lived in Carthage, modern-day Tunis in North Africa, who had become a convert and had begun taking classes for baptism when she was arrested and brought before a tribunal to give word to her confession. While she waited in jail, her non-believing father came to her quite often and begged her, pleaded repeatedly for her to renounce the name of Jesus Christ and to bow before Caesar. Perpetua at every instance refused. On one occasion, while her father's imploring her to give up her faith, she looks at her father and says, Father, do you see that vase? Can that vase be anything other than a vase? Her father replied in the negative, and she said, well, neither can I be anything other than a Christian. So there, in that jail in North Africa, she, her friends, and her woman servant, Felicity, were dressed, walked into a coliseum, and as the doors were open, there were gladiators and wild beasts prowling in the arena. They threw them in, they closed the doors, and the crowd all around them had eyes for blood. 
They wanted to see the carnage of the day. And not long after that door had closed, dust kicked up as a wild heifer charged them, hit Perpetua, flung her up into the air where she landed on her back, sat up, adjusted the belt on her tunic, and went to see about her friend. Then they let the leopards loose. And the leopards came, and it wasn't long before that leopard had maimed and marred the bodies of those women in the arena. But you see, this method was too slow for those in attendance, for they screamed for more blood. And it was then when each one of them lined up and received a sword to the chest. When I think about what it means to be fearless, and when I think about what it means to stand in an arena, we are not drugged before high courts and councils to then be thrown into arenas with wild beasts. But we do have a culture that is hell-bent on assassinating our character, dampening our faith, and constantly calling us to move our eyes away from Jesus. A culture that detests any talk about faithfulness to the God of the Bible. And we feel this in our workplaces. We feel this in our parenting. We feel this when we're out and about in town. A culture that looks at you like you crazy. And yet the call to faith and faithfulness remains for all of us who would maintain the confession upon our lips that Christ is Lord. So... This morning, I want to conclude our D-Now weekend messages and offer a word of encouragement for us this morning out of this book about what it means to be in the arena of faith, fighting for faithfulness in a culture, in the face of a culture that wants to tear us apart. I've got a few points this morning. The first is as follows. In the arena, you will experience loss. Chapter 12 opens up with a therefore. Being good exegetes, being faithful Bible scholars, we must ask, what is the therefore, therefore? What's interesting is the preceding chapter is the legendary great hall of faith, where the author of Hebrews begins with the patriarchs as he begins a rehearsal of salvation history. Adam. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham. You've even got the the matristics, if you will, in Sarah. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. And this rehearsal of salvation history was meant to engender faith in people who would be tempted to walk away from it. This book is written to Jews dispersed all across Asia. This letter, meant to be circulated and passed around, was a call for God's people to remember. Because unfortunately, many of us have the memory of a goldfish, which is about as long as it takes to swim around that bowl and get back to the starting place. 
I've always long grown frustrated with myself that I can see God work a masterful work in my life and then six minutes later doubt and wonder if he'll redeem me or set me free or rescue me from another situation. There can be something that I prayed for for a long time and I get it, I say thank you and then I go straight to worry. The book of Hebrews in chapter 11 is a call for us to Remember, I want to call your attention, though, to a very interesting part of chapter 11, beginning in verse 32. In verse 32, and what more shall I say? The author of Hebrews is like, baby, I've proved my point. I've shown what I want to say. For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Now, this is interesting. He begins with a conversation on Gideon. Now, this makes sense. We don't need to have a whole conversation about Gideon. We know the story of Gideon. Gideon's going up against the Midianites. The Midianites have a large army. Gideon's got 32,000 men, and God says, whittle it down. Now, I don't know about y'all. I've never led an army in a battle, but uh, if I've got 32 and I hear the word of the Lord saying, you got too many people, I'm like, huh? And yet, in time, we would find the mighty 300 fighting to victory without picking up a sword. And there, in Judges, God says, I will work on your behalf so that you know that the victory is mine. And then we get to Barak. And when we read Barak, we can assume that Deborah's here by omission as well. And who was Barak? He was a foot soldier promoted to be commander of the army that would defeat King Jamin. It is the story of a seemingly nobody being promoted, an instrument in the hand of God, where this victory as well could only be credited to God. Now, here's where it starts to get sticky. Because then we get Samson. And if you've read anything between Judges 13 and 16, you know that Samson was, in a word, tripping. <laughs> Anointed by birth to be a man that God would use with seemingly superhero strength, where the Holy Spirit filled him on multiple occasions to do the work of God, and he has a few simple rules, and he can't follow these few simple rules. It's as if you tell your child to sweep the floor, and two hours later you come back and the floor is not swept, and my response to my daughter would be, as it often is, you had one job. And yet, the story of Samson is a story that gives us, I think, three things that are crucial to our understanding of faith. By faith, the servants of God shall overcome seemingly insurmountable odds. How many of us, when approached by a lion in the wild, would dare to take on that lion with our bare hands? I don't advise it. And yet, God will give you and I great strength in the arena of faith because God cares about using his people for his glory. I think another thing that we can find, and this one brings comfort to my heart, that true faith can be found even when it's mingled with many failings. 
Samson's story is a story of failure. And yet, true faith can be found there. Why? Because the grace of God is so good. You see, our faith is more of a testament to the grace of God than it is our own ability to obey. What else can we learn from Samson? It is that the believer's faith endures to the end. Now, if you know the story of Samson, that you know that at the end, uh, maybe you saw that movie long ago when he's there with no eyes and he's pushing the pillars out from the tower, that there in a last act of faith, Samson's faith endured to the end and so should ours. And then we get to Jephthah, the son of a harlot, a man from a seedy background. He comes from the wrong family. He's not of the right socioeconomic class. And yet the grace of God here often finds and calls out men and women to do great things for him by faith. You see the, all of chapter 11, and as the author goes on to talk about the prophets, all of chapter 11 gives us a picture of faith that is not clean. It is mixed with regret. It is mixed with failing. It is mixed with sin. But the overriding, overwhelming factor is that God kept them. Even as chapter 11 would go on to say in verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. And all of these men and women who have gone before us stand in an arena as a cloud of witnesses, partaking and viewing our own fight for faith in the arena. And they don't want blood. They want you to persist in being faithful, urging us on, calling us ever forward into faithfulness, into obedience. When it gets hard, when it gets tough, when you want to quit, when it makes no sense, they're like, keep going. Because in the arena, you will experience loss. This weekend, we talked about what loss would look like. Sometimes it looks like you're, you're a loss of friends. Sometimes it looks like a loss of family. Sometimes it looks like a loss of reputation. And yet, what we gain when we're faithful is something that is incomparable to our loss. We're going to talk about that here in just a moment. But I think for our purposes this morning, it's important for us to see that in the arena, we will experience loss. Now, at the turn of the 20th century, a man named Ernest Shackleton, a wealthy man, was going to take an expedition to the bottom of the world to Antarctica. And it is said that he took out an ad in a local paper in New York that read as follows. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in event of success. Now look, I grew up in West End and later in the clay area, and where I'm from, you read this in the papers, you're not writing to become a whatever this guy's writing about. 
And yet there were, there was an overwhelming response to this ad in the paper where men wanted to be a part of this. Hazardous journey, long, low wages, bitter coal, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful. Now look, you had me, you had me in hazardous journey. Nope. Low wages? I got a family to feed. Bitter cold? Nah, bruh, I'm from Birmingham. <laughs> Safe return, doubtful. Mm-mm. And yet, many of us don't see that our faith and walking our faith in the arena is a similar endeavor. It is hazardous. It is costly. We don't get paid for it physically with monetary money. Long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful. We're going to return to this here in just a moment, but I think when we're in seasons of darkness, in seasons of drought, when we're tempted to give up and we're tempted to follow the things of the world, there is a remedy that Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 gives us in how we can persist in being faithful. Second point this morning, in the arena, we must fix our gaze upon Jesus. Looking to Jesus. Now, as we look to Jesus, it's important for us to look back. I think here in chapter one, we get, therefore, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and then we get, lay aside every weight and sin. Now, this is interesting. The word there for weight is, this is the only place we see it used in the New Testament, and it refers to any affection to this present life that is stronger than our impulse to be faithful. I'm going to say that again. It it refers to any affection to this present life that is stronger than our impulse to be faithful. I shared with the students on Friday night about a man in upstate New York, uh, excuse me, in uh, New York named Antoine Yates. Antoine Yates lived in a New York high-rise apartment with the love of his life. The love of his life, her name was Ming, and he spent all his time with Ming. He loved Ming. Until one day, Antoine showed up at the hospital with very strange wounds on his body. They asked him, what happened to you? And he said, I was attacked by my dog. Well, they're looking at the wounds and they're like, nah, brother, this don't add up. What happened to you? And then he began to tell the real tale. Antoine had been living in his high-rise New York apartment on the 22nd floor with a 450-pound Bengal tiger named Ming. When police showed up, they saw an animal with an eye the size of a pool cue. They had to dart her through the window to pull her out of the window and then get to the ground. Once they got into the apartment, they found in a closet a 15-foot reticulated python Under his bed, there was a six-foot-long iguana, and in the bathtub, there was a a four-and-a-half-foot-long caiman. Now, a caiman is a South American crocodile. So here is this man living in his apartment with a tiger, a snake, an iguana, and a crocodile. And you know what the kicker is? This dude was black. I'm really familiar with black people. That's not generally something that we do. (laughs) Keeping wild animals in our house like that. 
But I don't think Antoine ever intended for those animals to get that big. You see, I bet when he first got Ming, she was a cute and cuddly 27-pound cub. When he first got the snake, I bet he hatched it from an egg. And the iguana was probably small when he got it. And how cute is an well, uh, eight-inch crocodilian that it, you can just have swim around in your bathtub. But over time, those little things become big things. Antoine never left his apartment because he spent all of his time trying to keep them fed, afraid someone would find out about the things that he kept hidden. When I think about weight and sin, this is what it's like. Tethers to these earthly things of life that pull our gaze away from Jesus, these small things that seem inconsequential now, but if you give them space and darkness, they grow. And they grow to a point where it's too big to handle and ultimately it may kill you. This weight and this sin, and just a word on sin. We're good, faithful hearers of God's word. You, sit, you have sat under faithful teaching in this church for a number of years. And you know what sin is. And I've just got to remind myself that sin is not an uh-oh, it's not an oopsie, it's not a hey God, my bad. Sin is grotesque disobedience in the face of a holy God. And this sin that so easily clings to us, he says, lay it aside. And in this case, if I could translate, kill sin. Now, I'm reminded when I say that of the words of Martin Luther, who says, be a sinner and let your sins be strong. And then he follows that up by saying, but let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. In the arena, we will have loss. There will be pain. There will be suffering. And in the arena, there will be sin. But praise be to God that there is more grace in Jesus Christ than there is sin in us. And when we consider what it means to live in the arena, it means that our faith in Christ will make us swift repenters. And swift repentance is a sign of sweet romance with Jesus. So when we are swift repenters, when we lay aside every weight and sin, we can now look to Running the race with endurance. Now, I like this word here because that word, run the race with endurance, is a word that, kind of, that connotes a fight. Now, the Lord is still redeeming me from a long time of violent living. I used to hit dudes in their throats for a living, and I loved it. So I love this imagery of a fight. And it's appropriate language when you consider what it means to live by faith in a world that is always seeking to fight you. He says, lay aside every weight and sin and run or fight with endurance. Now, where I'm from, whenever two dudes were about to get into a fight, one thing that you never saw was them adding more clothes. You only added more clothes when you were about to get a whooping <laughs> by your mama or your grandmama. 
If you were getting ready to get in a fight, you could see them taking off clothes, shedding weight, even taking off their shoes sometimes to get ready to square up to get it in. Women were the same way. The first thing that's coming off is the earrings. The second thing that's coming off is in the outerwear. And unless you got a good sew-in, you might take that one off too. Now, let me translate myself because I understand I'm in a room full of Caucasians. You might not know what a sew-in is. A sew-in is a type of artificial hair that some black women wear in order for their hair to be to look good. I just got to translate myself. This is what multi-ethnic preaching looks like. Take notes, brother. But you would throw off every weight and sin. Why? So that you could fight with endurance. And endurance is sustained effort over time. This world, this fight, both outside and within, is designed to fatigue you to the point where you start to doubt and question the goodness of God and the promises of Christ. But we must not be these people. We must lay aside every weight, lay aside every sin, and run with endurance, but run where? Verse 2, looking to Jesus. Now, looking to Jesus seems like a bit of a Sunday school answer. It is in Sunday schools often the answer to every question the teacher asks. But it doesn't mean that that's necessarily wrong. There is a reflexive action of the Christian to constantly fix our gaze upon Jesus, we must. But to understand this a little bit better, let me give you a picture. I maintain that one of the greatest movies of all time is The Karate Kid. And I recently went back and watched The Karate Kid and realized that 75% of the movie, nothing happens. It's the same movements over and over again. Wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off. Same movements over and over and over and over and over again. Now, if I'm going to study with a, uh, with a master in the martial arts and he's making me wax his car, I'm assuming he doesn't know what he's doing. But when he steps into the fight, those seemingly mundane actions start coming into play. As soon as that first punch is thrown, oh my goodness, that guy's been trained. We must not wait until we get into the arena and figure out a plan and a strategy. Our plan and our strategy must be looking to Jesus constantly, daily, hourly. I need thee, Lord, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. You see, looking to Jesus is a bit like waxing on and waxing off. It's every day, every morning, every afternoon, every evening. God in Christ through the Holy Spirit will take your faithfulness and the fruit of your faithfulness will be joy. I want to say that again because that's good. Even if y'all ain't going to talk to me, that's okay. The fruit, hear me now, the fruit, a fruit of faithfulness is joy. When you're in the arena and you've been training and you've been looking at Jesus, 
And there may not be a, a heifer and a leopard and gladiators trying to kill you, but there are other things that are trying to discourage you and draw your heart away from God. And you're there and you feel the Spirit's power erupt from within you, calling Scripture to your mind, letting you love and show much grace to your enemy. So in doing so, you're reaping hot coals on their head. There is joy. And when you see your enemy bless you, in the story of Esther, it was Haman who wanted to destroy Israel. He had created gallows for Mordecai, and God turned it so that Haman, now uh, who had made gallows, was putting royal signets on Mordecai's back. God had flipped the narrative so that the enemy of God's people was now blessing them. And when we watch people who don't know Jesus have their hearts arrested by him, when the spirit regenerates their hearts and they go from enemy to brother, enemy to sister, there is joy there. And in the arena, joy can be full if it belongs to Jesus' joy. It is precisely joy that Jesus had his eyes on who for the joy set before him endured the cross. It is joy. It wasn't the cross itself only. He was looking beyond the cross. He didn't just have his eyes on the suffering. He had his eyes beyond the suffering. He had his eyes on what the suffering would produce. Jesus suffered well because he understood that his pain had purpose. And the purpose of his pain was to produce palpable propitiation, propelling sinners into righteousness. He had his eyes fixed on satisfying the wrath of God, the children of God being welcomed home, and an ultimate victory over the grave. His disciples, on the other hand, had their eyes fixed on the cross. We should have our eyes fixed on the cross, but we got to understand that that cross stays in the same place. Jesus is moving. You see, I think the disciples had their eyes fixed on the cross and not Jesus. They had their eyes fixed on the cross because as soon as Jesus breathed his last, they all went back to their former ways of life because the second Christ died, they knew, according to N.T. Wright, that they had backed the wrong horse. The son of God must not die. He's a conquering king. He's going to restore Jews to the top of the food chain. If he's dead, he was a false messiah. And there at the foot of Calvary and for three days, they looked as if they were hopeless. But at this point in the sermon, I must recall the late 80s and the early 90s where puppets and felt board were in style. And in my church growing up, there was a particular exciting event that happened twice a year, and that was Carmen's champion performed two puppets. And there was the epic battle between Jesus and Satan. With all of the demons standing around, there was uh, one young man in our youth group, fine young man, I, loved, I liked him, we were friends, but he just could not get the hang of what a puppet was supposed to do, so the, the back of the head of the puppet was to us the whole time, and I just wanted to say, that, hey man, turn your hand around. <laughs> but it depicts this battle between Jesus and Satan. Now, I think that for those three days, as Christ is in the grave, that Satan was gloating. I think he was quite satisfied with the work that he had done. But if we fix our eyes on the cross instead of on Jesus, we miss Sunday morning. 
Because on Sunday morning, the gloating of Satan became glowering. And God's seeming resignation became exaltation at the resuscitation of Jesus Christ. And all of heaven rejoices for the joy set before him. Your soul, my soul, that was the joy. And that joy is available for us. Because when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we can rejoice even in difficult circumstances. Uh, I like what one of my friends says. He says, to rejoice means to joy again. It means to joy again. So if I'm having a difficult day, if I'm having a difficult time, if I'm walking in a difficult season, I can rejoice again because my eye is not on the tragedy of the cross. It's on the triumph of Jesus Christ over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And Jesus says this in John 15. He says, I write these things to you. I spoke these things to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. And this is on the heels of a passage where he encourages and admonishes his disciples to do what? Abide in me. For apart from me, you can do no good thing. Joy. I am convinced that one of the greatest restaurant establishments on the planet is Chick-fil-A. <laughs> and I'm convinced of these facts because, I mean, you've eaten there. That chicken is anointed. <laughs> but one of the things that we know Chick-fil-A for, aside from exceptional chicken and exceptional customer service, is what they say to you after you say thank you. It was my pleasure. I imagine getting before the throne of God and falling to his face, kissing the feet of Jesus, exceedingly and abundantly thankful and grateful for the work that he has performed in my life, transforming me or transporting me from the kingdom of darkness into the domain of his marvelous son, calling me by name. And I will say to him, Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you. To which he will reply, it was my pleasure it was a joy for the Father to crush him for you. And it's this. It's that joy. That's the reason, fourth and finally, in the arena, you can move through fear with hope. You can move through fear with hope. If your eyes are fixed on Jesus, where is he now? Verse 2 tells you that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is seated in a position of completion, authority, and power. We have hope despite fear in the arena because Jesus has been victorious. Now, what is hope? Hope. That's a good theological word, hope. Hope as one of my friends told me, hope is borrowing the joy of tomorrow today. I'm going to say that again. Hope is borrowing the joy of tomorrow today. The joy of a triumphant Christ being in the presence of God. That all of creation sings his praises. For us to be able to hear the skies and the heavens sing celestial soliloquies to a sovereign savior. It is the joy of experiencing freedom from pain. Freedom from sin. Freedom from death. Joy everlasting. That's hope. And we can borrow that in the arena today. 
That is the promise when we fix our eyes on Jesus. You want to know how I know? Because Christ was humbled. God has exalted him. Philippians 2. I'm almost done. Stick with me. Paul writes, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Now, this is good because in the middle there between verses uh, 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 6 and 7, Paul says the same thing in the same sentence. He says, and being born in the likeness of men and then and being found in human form. The incarnation is so wonderful for Paul. He's got to describe it twice in the same sentence, almost with a stutter. Like, can you believe what God did? In Christ, that though he was God, he made himself a servant? And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has bestowed a name upon him that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's hope. That is what we have to look forward to. In heaven, on earth, under the earth, total supreme domination of Christ over all of the enemies. That's hope. So in our fear, in our anxiety, in our depression, in our darkness, we can have hope and joy. So how do we apply this to our lives? I've got two application points for you. They're there. Fix your eyes on Jesus and repeat. It's the wax on and wax off of the Christian life. When your eyes and your gaze gets diverted, fix your eyes on Jesus. When it gets diverted, repent swiftly, fix your eyes on Jesus. We, many people have made the Christian life or boiled it down to a bunch of talking points and a bunch of application points and a bunch of, you must, you must, you must. I'm just, this is easy. Jesus says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And when you're fearful about the future, fix your eyes on Jesus. When you're fearful about how to parent, fix your eyes on Jesus. When you're feeling guilty and shame because you've waited too long to parent the right way, fix your eyes on Jesus. You see, fixing your eyes on Jesus takes the phrase one day and transforms it to day one. And when we do that, we reset and we get to fix and refocus our gaze, taking hold of the joy and the hope available for us. Because at the end of the day, we won't be in the arena home. We will soon be home with Jesus. As Hebrews 13, 13 through 15 says, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. In the arena, outside the camp, bear the, pro the reproach he endured, for here we have no lasting city. This is not our home, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And it is a name that is above every name. 